0: It was like an act of discovery really it was every thread that i pulled on i found something new or deeper or that uh like ancient history had had told us something about this and to our modern uh, understanding we, we totally forgot about it and so i really wanted to go back to the source of of all of this
1: hey everybody and welcome to another episode of disciple types podcast i'm dave and this is my brother andrew hi everybody So for this episode, Andrew and I thought it would be really helpful for us to give you the background, provide the background behind Disciple Types that Andrew's been working on over the last four years, and it's really an exciting thing. I've been alongside him in the journey, but now I'm getting to see some of the stuff fleshed out uh, on the website and other writings that Andrew has done, and it's really pretty awesome And I'm excited to start kind of from the beginning here for the listeners. Andrew, what is personality?
0: Well, that's a good question. Uh, Personality can be defined a, a lot of different ways. It's a concept in psychology that basically says who a person is as defined by their behaviors that stay the same over time. Uh, regardless of of the different situations that a person's in. That's the sort of dry definition of it. Uh, But personality has been something that's fascinated people for thousands, literally thousands of years, going back to ancient peoples. Uh, You can see it in their astrology, in their mythology, in their symbolism. So it's been this fascination for all of humanity, basically asking the question who we are. Uh, But as Christians, that question has to be answered through Scripture. And for me— when I started thinking about this theory, I asked that question, who am I? And I had to go back to the start. And the start, obviously, the Bible is Genesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Genesis, it says that God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And He's saying our, meaning us three, the Trinity. Uh, and so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So that's who we are. We are the image of God. But we're not the exact perfect representation of him an image is a representation of something but it's not the thing itself Uh, so the way i like to think about it is we are reflections as in mirrors of god where our reflection is the reverse of his true nature so we complement god's nature and that's one of the reasons that he created us so that we could bear witness to and be complementary to him just as the three parts of the trinity were complementary and are complementary to each other. And at, when God created us male and female, male and female are complementary to each other.
1: right. Like let us make man, let us make man in our image. So he is creating something that's not divine to reflect the divine and and kind of calling us into communion with him in that way.
0: That's right. Communion with God and communion with each other. Hmm. And I think that's the key thing when we think about personality. Uh, we have human nature, but personality tells us how each individual person is alike and different from everybody else. That's the key thing when we're thinking about personality. So, And and the New Testament acknowledges this. Uh, Paul explicitly says this. He says in Romans, he says, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we the many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. But we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So what Paul's is saying is is we are individuals, but we're also one body. We have one nature that is the reflection, the compliment, the complement of God's nature. But each of us have specific and different roles to play in life and in communion with each other. And and
1: for many Christians, communion with each other will look like church. If if we're the reflection of God and we are in communion with one another and with Him, just like He is in communion through the Trinity, what is it that keeps the church from being perfect when it has all the different parts that it should have all the different parts that it needs to function? Does Paul have anything to say about why we're not perfect in ourselves and in
0: communion? Um, of course he does. Uh, uh, yeah, so... That's, you know, that's intrinsic to, to everything that, that Paul preaches, um, that we're fallen. And so he, he, the way he explains it in, in 1 Corinthians is—and I, I have it right here, so I'll just read it to you— uh, Now we know so little, even with our special gifts, and the preaching of those most gifted is still so poor. But when we have been made perfect and complete, then the need for these inadequate special gifts will come to an end, and they will disappear. We can, we can see and understand only a little about God now, as if we were peering at his reflection in a poor mirror. Mm-hmm. So there's that image again, uh, uh, the, the reflection. Right. But someday we are going to see him in his completeness face to face. Now all that I know is hazy and blurred, but then I will see everything clearly, just as clearly as God sees into my heart right now. Uh, and there's a very famous line from that in the King James Version, which which I love poetically. It says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known.
1: Wow, well, yeah. So that's the Scanner Darkly verse.
0: That's right. That's where they, yeah, from the uh, the sci-fi novel and movie, Scanner Darkly is taken directly from that. Right. So you can see. These these ideas of Paul's are in Scripture, but they also intertwine and influence the secular culture and, and the different cultures which uh, intersect with them. So it, it's just really fascinating to me how all these things converge on this concept of what is our nature, what is our personality. And so you know, Paul is saying that we're fallen, that we're images of God, but poor images. We're poor mirrors or uh, a glass darkly. Right. Um, and so the reflection doesn't really give us an accurate picture of who God is. We can, we can look at each other and ourselves at our own natures. We could stare at think. the mirror. Exactly. Exactly. Stare, stare at the mirror of ourselves, of our nature and get a totally warped image of who God really is because mm-hmm. we are basically making him in our image instead right. of realizing that we are made in his image. Right. Um, and so, um, our human, our human nature is like a mirror that once accurately reflected the image of God, but then the fall of man shattered that mirror into countless pieces of broken glass, uh, and each of us is just a shard of that mirror. So our reflection is distorted, and you know, kind of like a, if you go through a funhouse where all the mirrors are warped, uh, and you know, you could walk through the hall and your head is really big on one, and then your arm is really big on another you think about it that way, that is like humanity reflecting God. Some people have certain uh, aspects of him that are accentuated in their personality, and others have uh, uh, different uh, aspects of his personality that are accentuated. Um, So none of us are really giving an accurate image of God, but together we can sort of approximate and get close to what maybe he is like, but that's a very difficult task to do. And we, we see the church is supposed to be uh, reflecting that image of God, but there's so much division and that right. division is caused by our fallen nature. Um,
1: right. How, how can we possibly understand God when we are so broken, so distorted?
0: That's right. Uh, yes. Yeah, sin, uh, has shattered our mirror, and not just shattered it; it continues to add, you know, scratches to our surfaces and and tarnish on it. Um, and so, o- over a lifetime, it it becomes more and more difficult to see the image of God underneath all of that. And so, the challenge in my own life, and I think the challenge for the church and each individual person, is to try to See what is behind that, of what if they were all removed, and that's that's through the grace of, of God only that we can remove that muck and mire from our surface. Um, but that that's the goal, and that's that's really the starting point of the theory. What is our nature? What is our personality? It's a reflection of God.
1: But what does I, that mean? I really like something you've written, uh, that I'll just read really quickly that that sums it up. I think, um, you, you wrote, no two fragments of the shattered mirror are exactly alike. I, I really like that because it, it highlights the fact that um, each of us is is flawed in, in different ways, which opens the door for complementing one another. If, if uh, I'm flawed in a way that, that you can make up for, and you're flawed in a way that I can make up for. And I really like that. And you, you went on to say, from the moment of our birth, each of us carries sharp edges and cracks— that grow as we we become smudged and scratched by the trials of life. But underneath all the tarnish hides our true nature, ready to shine like diamonds when the light of God's glory strikes us just right. I really think that that sums up this idea of being um, a broken mirror of God's image, but not all the same.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's
1: You couldn't have said it better yourself. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, I I I think that what happened was you started to look for evidence trying to differentiate the disciples by personality through the gospels you found that that was possible and that's when you made the quiz but then you wanted to go back and see is there more evidence in the bible in history that we can use to really flesh this thing out and were there people that thought about this before? And as you've said, there were. We're not the first to actually think about the personalities and the temperaments of the disciples of Jesus Christ.
0: That's, a- that's absolutely right. So thinking about them is—thinking is, about the disciples is what led me to the quiz. That's when when it all went viral— and then I realized I need to get serious about it and say, okay, what, what is the what is this theory really saying? Right. And how can I support what I'm, trying, what I'm saying? Um, and so it was really important to me to say, okay, so now I have a, a, a sense of our human nature as an image of God. Um, but then, as Paul mentioned, we're looking through a poor mirror. So right. how do we go from that to saying we understand what God's nature is, and therefore we understand more about our own personalities? Um And so in in the Bible, it says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Mm. It says the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So it's saying that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, whereas humanity is the reflected image, the opposite, the complement of his being. Jesus was sent to us um, amongst many other reasons, but one way so that we could actually understand Him, interact with him, hear actual words from him, see how he interacted with people. So the best source of understanding Jesus is the Gospels.
1: Hmm.
0: Absolutely, you know the best. There, you know there's, there's other gospels out there that are uh, apocryphal, that we you know we can't trust, but the, the four main gospels that made it into the New Testament, are our best source of information about jesus and so the question is what can we learn from the gospels and why are there four right <laughs> uh, i mean that's you know i mentioned the apocryphal gospels they're out there um and they give different accounts that don't really uh you know sync with the the other four but the other four matthew mark luke and john that is they also differ in certain aspects, um, in certain ways where events are out of order or certain things are uh, emphasized differently than, than in the other Gospels. And so that's a really interesting question. How, how do we get an accurate uh, perception of Jesus from the Gospels when they don't necessarily all agree with each other? Think about it. I mean, if you were 12 guys, or I guess 11 guys after Judas, um, who wanted to make up a story about a guy who was God who died and came back to life and it didn't happen, but you wanted to make it up. You would come up with this really elaborate plot and you would have all of your details organized. You'd be on the same page so that no one could say, Hey, well, he said this and he said that. So, so what's up with that? Uh, You would be in complete agreement, but that's not what we find in the four gospels. We find different accounts. Mm. We find, uh, the personalities of the writers of the Gospels and their own perspectives on the same events. It's you know, multiple people saw the same thing happen, right. and then wrote something slightly different about it. Right. And we can see that happening every day. You go into a courtroom and you have test, uh, witness testimony, testimony
1: is always multiple.
0: Different, exactly different. It, yep. It's different. It's different between two different perspectives. So that is actually a, a great piece of evidence to say that these events really did happen, and that these are accurate descriptions of those events according to the people who witnessed it or people who heard about it from people who did see it. Right. Um, I, I find that very comforting, and it's—you it's, it's you know, a lot of people will try to shake your faith over the fact that there's discrepancies, and it's it's just amazing to me um, that it's actually a strength of the Gospels, that their diversity.
1: They're doing their best to get the information out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, and they wrote it at different times. Some people wrote it uh, long after the events occurred, mm-hmm. some some less less time. Uh, and Mark in particular, what, uh, obviously Mark wasn't one of the disciples, but he wrote based on Peter's eyewitness account. So Peter was going around giving all these speeches, and Mark was writing it down diligently um, and, and, and saying this is what Peter saw right. based on Peter's testimony. Uh, and Luke, uh, you know, decades later, after a, a, a critical mass of people had, you know, b- borne witness to what happened, Luke set out to say, "Well, I wasn't there, but I really want to dig into this and say, and investigate, you know, what really happened, you know, who, who's trustworthy, and get all the events down, right, right, uh, in order, you know, put them in the context of of history." And so it's really fascinating the different approaches that that the four gospel writers took, and so that that gets us to you know, what about those apocryphal uh, gospels, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, or, you know, were they really written by the disciples, or eyewitnesses, or were they made up, um, and, and how we can tell the difference? Mm-hmm. And, you know, from a, a modern perspective, we just have to rely on on the New Testament as it stands, because we're so far removed from it, we have no real way of knowing. Um, but the people who were a little bit close to it, closer to it, uh, the early church fathers, they really— looked at and there was disagreement amongst them for sure uh, but but one of one of the early church, fa- uh, church fathers uh, saint irenaeus uh, he wrote around 180 AD so we're looking at you know you know less than 200 years after it occurred so if you think about irenaeus mm-hmm. he's looking and writing at writing about uh, what happened uh, you know less than 200 years ago so we're looking at things that happened in you know, just before the civil war in our, in our perspective.
1: Right. Wow.
0: Yeah. So it's not that far away. And so mm-hmm. he really would be able to have sources that would say, this person is trustworthy. This event is trustworthy and this one's not. And so he was really influential in giving us exactly four gospels, not more, not less. Uh, he didn't try to, and some other people did, uh, St. Augustine, in fact, tried to put all four gospels together and call it a gospel harmony. Uh, and there's some value in that, I think, for trying to piece the story together. But Irenaeus was an advocate for keeping four and exactly four gospels. Um, and and his reasoning for that is absolutely fascinating, and I want to share that uh, with you and with the listeners. So I, I, I have it here in front of me because I want to get it exactly right. So Irenaeus in 180D writes this, it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. For since there are four zones of the world in which we live, and four principal winds, while the Church is scattered throughout all the world, it is fitting that she should have four pillars, breathing out immortality on every side, and vivifying men afresh, from which fact it is evident that the Word has given us the Gospel under four aspects, but bound together by one Spirit, for the cherubim too were four-faced, and their faces were images of the dispensation of the Son of God. So there's a few things in that: the idea of images coming up again, reflections, and the idea of four aspects being bound together by one spirit. That that calls back to what Paul said about the church, that we are all we are all different, but bound together in one body.
1: And you so can I, tell he was thinking about the word when he did that, because then he tied it back into the the four-faced cherubim
0: exactly right and so the word of god is both christ Mm -hmm. uh, but also revealed scripture and so that that idea that there's four aspects of christ and also of scripture so he's saying that there must be four gospels because it needs to be presented in four different ways because there are four different aspects to be presented yeah that is so interesting and, and when I found that I, I, that's when I knew that I hit on something that uh, it went way beyond a viral quiz right. and I'm, and I realized, oh my gosh, this this is old. This is stuff that people knew early on. Yeah. and it largely it, it seems to me at least in, in, my, in my experience, no one ever talks about it. No, no one knows about it. Uh, that this is the reason. Ask any question not any Christian. I'm sure there's very much more educated Christians out there listening. than. I'm
1: sure there are seminarians who are going to (laughs) contact us. (laughs) We're
0: like, we know. And um, so uh, I just found this fascinating. So I I took a deeper look into it. And, And one of the things is that I really didn't know about his reference to the cherubim. I said, you know, what's that about? So I did a little bit, you know, deeper digging and Actually, Irenaeus does reference it in, in, in later on in that passage, but he's talking about Revelation chapter four, um, and that, if if I can remind you, is the the vision of the throne of God, God sitting on the throne, and being surrounded by four living creatures, and you, you'll remember the the ending part here. I'll just I'll just read it. And once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, in the center around the f- Around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so that last part is, you know, shows up in in song, in in liturgy throughout right. uh, the church. But we pay a little bit less attention to these kind of weird creatures with eyes all over them. It's kind of creepy, right? You know, a little bit. Yeah, it's it's too. Um, it's
1: not something that we we can easily imagine. And most of the Bible seems fairly grounded compared to the images that you find in visions or in Revelation.
0: Right. And and it's it's fodder for a lot of people to really dig deep about. You know, the end times, which is on some people's minds right now. Sure. Stuff going on. but um, Which is why we're Skype podcasting instead of actually together and in person. That's right. Life in the time of corona. Um, anyway, uh, this is sort of an escape from all that. Um, so so we could talk about uh, the four living creatures, and Irenaeus makes sense of it for us. Well, it makes sense of it for me.
1: I think it's really interesting, just before we go on further, that cherub or cherubim means... To be near or near one. So the idea that these creatures, these specific creatures, their identity is defined by their proximity to the Lord. Mm -hmm. I just find that interesting being that the disciples, that was their job as well, was to be in proximity to the Lord. And Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of moving, and I think it's interesting that Irenaeus used them as well as his other
0: examples in that passage you read. That is very profound. And I think that ties in really well. And so, yeah, so Irenaeus is saying that because there are four living creatures, that Christ has four aspects that need to be presented in four different ways. What Irenaeus did was he specifically tied those symbols to each of the Gospels. And, you know, I, I'm just going to read again because it's such a such powerful writing. And so he says that the first living creature was like a lion, symbolizing His effectual working, that's Jesus' effectual working. His leadership and royal power. The second was like a calf, signifying sacrificial and sacerdotal order. And sacerdotal is a big word for priestly, so the way that Jesus is a priest. Uh, But the third had, as it were, the face as of a man, an evident description of his advent as a human being. The fourth was like a flying eagle, pointing out the gift of the Spirit, hovering with his wings over the church. And therefore, the Gospels are in accord with these things, among which Christ Jesus is seated. So he's saying that mm-hmm. the four Gospels are representing the four aspects of Christ, and the four aspects uh, have to do with power, uh, Christ's uh, effectual working, his leadership and royal power. Mm-hmm. And that's symbolized by the lion. Right. And he's saying the calf is a sacrificial animal, and therefore it represents Jesus as a priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third, as a man— uh, reflecting that Jesus became a man was God but he became Human. fully a man right mm-hmm, exactly mm-hmm. uh and the flying eagle represents the spirit the spiritual nature of Christ um,
1: birds often represent the spirit the indwelling of the of the spirit a, d- a dove a dove descended on Christ when he was baptized
0: and and going back in in all different cultures the eagle uh, is 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 a symbol of rising above uh in a spiritual world mm-hmm. um and so it, that it's just really amazing that Irenaeus did this less than 200 years after Christ and I, I said this before i I've never heard this until I started looking into it but you know it's not just Irenaeus Saint jerome a little bit later um about 200 years again later after Irenaeus he also took up this idea that the gospels and the gospel writers and Christ are symbolized by these symbols, these these creatures. And so he says, the book of Ezekiel also proves that these four Gospels had been predicted much earlier. Its first vision is described as follows. So now he's talking about Ezekiel's vision, not the Revelation vision. He's mm-hmm. saying it's also in Ezekiel. So it shows up twice in the Bible, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. Wow. These same four creatures, and we'll see. And then, in the midst, there was a likeness likeness of four animals. Their countenances were the face of a man, and the face of a lion, and the face of a calf, and the face of an eagle. Wow. The first, yeah, I know. The first face of a man signifies Matthew. So now he's saying specifically that the man represents Matthew, Mm. who began his narrative as though about a man. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The second mark in whom the voice of a lion roaring in the wilderness is heard. A voice of one shouting in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The third is the face of the calf, which prefigures that the evangelist Luke began with Zechariah the priest, who was John the Baptist's father. And the fourth, John, the evangelist, who having taken up eagle's wings and hastening toward higher matters, discusses the word of God. So I, again, Jerome, an amazing writer uh, and an amazing thinker, he, he's getting at, okay, it's not just how, uh, how Jesus is presented, but it's the actual style that the gospel is written in that is defining that gospel and is symbolized by the the symbol of the living
1: creature. So we've got Paul talking about the body and the different parts of the body, each being different but being unified. And then we've got Irenaeus drawing from Revelation and talking about these four animal symbols, um, power, the lion is power, the ox is wisdom, the man is humanity, and the eagle is divinity. He's saying that these are representative of Jesus Christ. And then Jerome comes along and, and draws out of Ezekiel. He finds the same symbology there in Ezekiel and says that not only are these symbols of Christ, but these are symbols of the gospel writers. And what is so amazing about that is then you draw it together and you realize these individual men are symbols that represent Christ. They are each a piece of, uh, of God in that way, an imperfect, not divine image of God. But the fact that these four men, these four symbols, both represent Christ, is pretty awesome.
0: It blew my mind <laughs> that that this was there, uh, you know, thousands of years ago. This idea, and it. It fell out of favor at some point, this idea that that Mark is symbolized by a lion, that John is symbolized by an eagle, that Matthew is symbolized by a man, and that Luke is symbolized by an ox. This was ubiquitous. This was all over the place in illuminated manuscripts, in architecture, in stained glass. The, the Lion of St. Mark is the official symbol of the city of Venice. That's how influential this idea that these gospel writers were symbolized by these creatures, and that that the style and, and theme of each gospel is represented by these, and that that means that Christ's nature is fourfold. Hmm. Uh, and, and what they call it, and this is a cool, fancy word that I, I love this word, um, they call it the tetramorph. Tetra meaning four, and morph meaning forms. So they're saying that the living creatures all together are called the tetramorph. They have four forms. Four forms. So the Gospels are tetramorph, and Christ is tetramorph. Four forms, as presented through the Gospels. Right. Um, and because we are the mirror image of Christ, that means we are tetramorph as well. We are four forms. Wow. Uh, and we, so we can think about our personalities, and this gets to your original question, which is, you know, a long what time What is personality? What is personality? We're getting there. From a, from a Christian perspective, personality is the mirror image reflection of Christ in four forms. Um, and so the question is, what are those four forms? Um, how can we think about it in our modern context that, you know, uh, gives life again to this idea of the tetramorph that's fallen out of favor, you know, at least 500 years ago. That's when you sort of stop seeing it, and you know we can get at the the idea of what are our four forms. First, we have to think about what the four forms are for Christ, and basically he has four roles with with the four aspects. And so, as presented in the Gospels, in Matthew he's presented as a just king. Mm. In Mark he's presented as a powerful miracle a miracle worker. Uh, in Luke, he's presented as a wise priest, and in John, he's presented as a spiritual prophet. So he has these four different aspects, these four different roles. And so if we think about us as being complementary to Christ, then our tetramorph, our aspects, have to bear witness to his four aspects. That's the only reason we exist. We're, we are reflections of, of Christ. Mm-hmm. So how do we be reflections? Uh, and that, That's really a question. And so, from a modern context, we have difficulty diving into that. People are probably listening to us and saying, "Okay, with these these symbols with eyes all over them, you know, what is this? Is this astrology? Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, where are you going with all this?"
1: Right. Even people who may be familiar with some of the symbology or some of the archaeology or um, the artwork um, are probably wondering what in the world this could possibly have to do with modern thought modern theology
0: modern life exactly um and i get that and i I was the same way and i wanted to update things you know my background is psychology and psychology is really just an update of all the ancient wisdom that the civilizations have accrued Mm -hmm. over all of human history and astrology was the first method of psychology really of you know saying okay well someone's born under this sign, and therefore the personality being influenced by that and the different planets. And so, it, so they had this idea that people had these differences and there's and these personality types. But where they went wrong is they were thinking that, that the stars and the planets were influencing us in certain ways to make us uh, behave certain ways. Mm-hmm. So that's where they go wrong. But their observations about the patterns of human behavior, well, they were pretty accurate. Um, so you can think about the different you know, signs in astrology and, and you know, horoscopes are written so vaguely that they could apply to anybody um, to be convincing. But the idea is that there are different types of people. And we understand this intuitively, just living. I, you, know, you just notice, well that person's just different. and in some ways, they're similar to this other person. And, and if you look uh, look at it in the right light, you see, these patterns and that's what myers-briggs is getting at that's what the Enneagram is getting at they're all getting at the same idea mm-hmm. it's just myers-briggs uh, in my in my opinion the the basis of it is is shaky because it goes back to the theories of Carl Jung who was brilliant but had some wacky ideas he was a, pro- a Christ- protege of, of, of Freud yeah and they had a falling out but they're both brilliant thinkers who had some weird ideas mm-hmm. Um <laughs> The enneagram, I'm a little bit less familiar with, but it's it's it has a mystic past, but it um, it's relatively new, and and for me, it's not uh, fully grounded in scripture, uh, even though I think its insights are really helpful. And so, if anybody is a fan of either one of those, and it's helpful to you, that's awesome. And my my goal here is to take all that stuff that it's that is converging, and say, this is really grounded. In the Bible, this is really scripture. Right. Um, so, with that said, I wanted to update this this uh, language of the tetramorph for some for for the age of the Enlightenment, if you will, mm-hmm. where we you know, uh, apply reason to things and we say, okay, we have to have definitions and you know. Um, We're skipping postmodernism, going right oh, back yeah, we, to the Enlightenment. We always skip postmodernism. We, yeah. it, it it won't happen. It never happened. This is the age of Enlightenment. Okay, good. As far as I'm concerned. Uh, um and so one of the the major strains of Christianity that came out of the Enlightenment was Methodism. The idea that John Wesley wanting to, as the name implies, bring a method mm. to it, which is mm-hmm. very enlightenment in, in its in its goals. Yeah. Um and so uh one of the things that the Methodist Church uh and Wesleyanism in general thinks about, but even though John Wesley did not say this explicitly, they take from his writings and, and, and sermons, that he was saying that there are four different ways that we can know truth, mm-hmm. and they call this idea the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So naturally, I'm talking about the tetramorph, I'm, I'm reading about the tetramorph, I'm naturally drawn and curious about this quadrilateral, because uh, quadrilateral means four-sided. And so the Wesleyan quadrilateral has four different ways we can know truth, and those four ways are Scripture, which is the primary way we can know truth the most important way. And we're talking about uh, biblical truth here and spiritual truth. Uh, Another way to know truth is reason. Uh, Still another way is experience. And the last way is tradition. And so I'll sort of define those things. Scripture is, you know, it's a collection of books, letters, songs, stories, prophecies, everything that's in the Bible, that's canonized in the form of the Holy Bible. That's all Scripture. Mm-hmm. And there, we, we elevate it above everything else because it comes straight from God's mouth and believe that it's that, uh, inspired scripture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Tradition is the collective non-scriptural writings, sermons, rituals, so everything that John Wesley wrote and every uh, encyclical that the pope has put out and, and all this stuff altogether makes the tradition. And that doesn't mean the tradition is infallible, but tradition is important for saying, these people have lived with this over 2000 years. We've seen what works, what doesn't. And so the the, the traditions that stand the test of time that do not uh, fall away when language and translations change or when cultures change or technology changes or scientific knowledge, those traditions that stand the test of time are really, really fundamental. We, We elevate those. So that's what tradition is all about. That's a way we can know truth by what, what the Church Fathers, what the history of the Church has shown us. Another way we can know truth, another part of the quadrilateral, is experience. And that's the sum total of any given person's life. Everything that happens to them, the people they meet, things they see, the blessings and trials that they have, their ups and downs. And what you see in your own life is pivotal for knowing what truth is. I mean, that's how we, that's how we live. We live through experience. And some people can go wrong and, and say, well, that's not my truth, or that's not my personal truth. <laughs> uh, and, and people say that a lot these days, it seems like. And you know, there's something to it, which is, you know, if you haven't lived through my shoes, you you know, you don't know. Right. Um. But always gotta remember, with experience, it has to be interpreted in the light of the other sides of the quadrilateral. How does my experience tie with what Scripture says? How does my experience tie with what tradition has said? You could say that, you know marriage is a joke and that that that's you know we, we shouldn't have marriage well tradition says otherwise and so that's an example of you know experience and tradition sort of at odds with each other um and the last corner of the quadrilateral is reason which is my personal favorite one but um uh, that's the use of logic to separate facts.
1: How from a very enlightenment so, of you!
0: <laughs> uh, and so that that's what enables us to discern fallacies, and contradictions, and false doctrines. Um, and but also it inspires us to try to understand God's role in nature through science, uh, which you know it, through the same enlightenment. People or you know just before the enlightenment, science and Christian religion in the West went hand in hand. Everyone. Uh, tried to interpret both at the same time.
1: You know, they saw it as trying to discover God's methods, God's systems. Uh, they were parallel
0: rather than in conflict. Right. The The idea that that God was a watchmaker, perhaps, you know, some of them you know, thinking he set up the system and let it go so we have free will. Uh, there's a lot of interesting ideas there. Um, but separating science from religion, this is a totally different topic for another podcast, um, mm-hmm. ha- has its benefits for both. But... Being, at, being a person who can put them together in your own life uh, is, is very crucial. But you know, so, so reason can produce skepticism, but it also stimulates curiosity. And so it's th- this Wesleyan quadrilateral, which I had heard you know ooh, a long time ago about, and it's always fascinated me. And so I realized, you know, I think there's a connection here between the tetramorph and the quadrilateral. And we can see how that sort of uh, plays out in our own lives. And where some people, I just mentioned, reason's my favorite one. You know, uh, I rely on reason as my go-to yeah. whenever I'm presented with new information. How does this check out? Does this make sense? And so those things can apply in different ways. But I think that there's a there's something missing from the quadrilateral. As much as I love it, I think that there's a piece missing. And I think it's, it goes back to that the idea of scripture being the revealed uh, word of God. And so scripture. As, as canonized in the Bible is the revealed Word of God. We believe that. But before something becomes Scripture, that, that a group of uh, enlightened people uh, and, and guided people decide that this particular book or this letter is part of Scripture, it's just a letter. It's just a prophecy. Uh, right. At some point when it's first written, it's not considered Scripture. It's right. just something that was revealed to somebody. Um, and then through a process, we we say, okay, this is this is to be trusted. This is someone's this ex- truth. someone's experience recorded. Right. It, it could be someone's experience, but in the case of say Ezekiel or or Revelation, um, that wasn't their experience. That was a revelation right. that they had. Right. And anybody can say that I have a revelation, but how do we know that it's truth? Right. So for for me, there is something missing from the quadrilateral that says, how do we account for? revelation that doesn't rise to the level of scripture something that you feel to be true some vision you had some dream you had some conviction that you have about your life about um about God that you absolutely believe was from uh, some other source not just you know your deductive reasoning mm-hmm. or what happened to you but something that came to you was revealed to you so so to me i actually like to think of the quadrilateral as a pyramid Uh, And and maybe we'll we'll link to an image of of what I'm talking about. But
1: I was going to say in the show notes, we can link to all of these images. We'll have the tetramorph and the Wesleyan quadrilateral and the pyramid.
0: Yes, that that would be great. Yeah. So so when you get a chance, you can check it out. Um, The base of the pyramid would be formed by reason, tradition and experience with revelation added in. And this is revelation that does not rise to the level of scripture, but the pyramid rises to have scripture as the capstone. Mm. So everything serves to uphold scripture. True. If anything is exactly, if anything is out of whack with the structure of your pyramid, then that indicates that that maybe your experience is not indicative of truth, or your reasoning has gone haywire somewhere, mm. or the tradition is is no longer you know valid. Uh, or your revelation is just a kooky dream you had <laughs> after taking too much Benadryl or something. Um, and so that's that's my idea. That's my way of thinking about how we know truth, uh, uh, religious truth. So now we have this basis of saying, okay, we've got four ways of knowing truth, experience, reason, tradition, and revelation. Hmm. How do those parts of the quadrilateral, of the pyramid base, tie in to the tetramorph and for me it sort of came to me you know was revealed to me if you will um actually it was more uh, more of a, a logical deduction actually um, <laughs> but the idea of uh, we think about the, the the aspects of christ of him as a just king and a king sets down laws and decrees and commands that form the structure of society and so t- to me, tradition is the, a- is the aspect of the pyramid that best enables us to appreciate Christ as a just king, hmm. as someone who came here as a man, as a human, to rule over earthly things. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that tradition fits in with just king. Experience enables us to witness the powerful miracles that Christ worked in his day, and still works in our lives today. This actually happened to me, and I want to share this experience with you. So that's an example of experience tying in and bearing witness to Christ as the powerful miracle worker. Reason allows us to listen to and understand and apply the wisdom of Christ the priest. And revelation allows us to, to have this otherworldly connection to Christ, the spiritual prophet, who, uh, in John, just he he, the way John expresses it and the things that Jesus says and the conversations he has, it it's really soars above uh, everything else. And, like an and eagle, exactly, like an eagle, and it's it's difficult to, uh, you know, make sense of it sometimes from a logical perspective. And you can but only just, intuit. That's right. You you just you feel it, and so that to uh, that is. An important um, next step to go, okay, the tetramorph was this ancient wisdom, hmm. but it's fallen out of favor. And now we have this more modern way of thinking about understanding truth in these four different ways, tradition, experience, reason, and revelation, Yeah, and how, and how it defines us. So
1: I think this is a really good place to stop this particular podcast because we can go into more detail in another podcast about how all of this theory relates to the four gospel writers and to our temperaments, our personalities. But before we go, let's just tie it together for our listeners. Andrew, could you tell us if we took the base of the pyramid, we know we have that base of that pyramid, and then at the top, at the pinnacle of the pyramid, is scripture. But if you put the disciples on top of those other four traits that, that are there, what, what do we have? What does it look like? So when we talk about the
0: gospel writers, they would each tie into one of the aspects of Christ and one of the aspects of the base of the pyramid. So Matthew, uh, in his writing—we'll talk about this in in the next podcast we do— Matthew really focused on tradition when writing. He was writing to a Jewish audience, so he really paid attention to Jewish tradition, the Scripture, and the law. Um, Mark uh, was writing based on Peter's experiences as he gave speeches testifying to what he had seen in, by his personal experience. So Mark is experience. Luke uh, used his reason to investigate all the things that he was being told and all the writings that he came across about the truth of what happened uh, when Jesus was alive and, and died and, and rose again, and also what happened with the early church uh, when he wrote Acts. And John uh he was inspired by, by Revelation, uh, and in, I mean, he wrote the book Revelation, um, and so he focuses on um, the spiritual side of Christ. So John, in in ancient uh, art uh, art and architecture, uh, is symbolized by the eagle. Luke is symbolized by the ox. Mark symbolized by the lion. Matthew symbolized by uh, the man. And so that, that ties it all together, where Matthew is the man of tradition, Mark is the lion of experience, Luke is the ox of reason, and John is the eagle of revelation.
1: Very, very interesting stuff. I can't wait to get into uh, more detail with our listeners in another podcast. And still to come, we're going to do a podcast on each type, so people can just— click on that type and listen. Whatever they got on the quiz, they can listen to their type specifically. Uh, We'll go into detail about their type and the disciple that they uh, are most like. So thank you so much for listening.
0: Thank you, everybody. Uh, Please like and subscribe this podcast if you enjoyed it and share it with your friends. Thank you. <laughs> All
1: right. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Disciple Types Talk Podcast. I'm Dave, and this is my brother, Andrew. Hi, everybody. And that's as far as
0: we got. <laughs> <laughs>